Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, pattern and decoration. The Museum of Contemporary Art Los Angeles is presenting with pleasure Pattern and Decoration in American Art 1972 to 1985. It's one of the best shows I've seen all year. The exhibition is the first broad scholarly survey of one of the most important art movements to emerge out of American feminism. The exhibition features about 50 artists whose work addressed and embraced material typically coded as feminine and thus inferior, including the decorative, domestic, and ornamental. The exhibition was curated by my first guest, Anna Katz. It will remain on view in Los Angeles through May 11th before traveling to the Hessel Museum of Art at Bard College. The terrific exhibition catalog, immediately the go-to text on P&D, was published by MOCA in association with Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $54. On the second segment, artist Robert Zakanich on how he helped initiate P&D. But first, Anna Katz, after the break. This fall, for its 30th anniversary, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents a union of three internationally acclaimed artists, all originally from Ohio and exhibiting together for the first time. Here, Anne Hamilton, Jenny Holzer, Maya Lin explores ideas of place, time, language, and perception through world premiere and site-specific works in the Wex galleries. Additional off-site components activate spaces at Ohio State and around the city of Columbus. Here is on view through December 29th. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Art for a New Understanding, Native Voices, 1950s to Now, the first exhibition to chart the development of contemporary indigenous art in the United States and Canada. For generations, Native North American artists have exhibited work mostly outside of mainstream art institutions. Native Voices begins to remedy that division presenting approximately 60 works of art in a wide variety of media by Native American artists from many nations and regions. The exhibition examines the practices and perspectives of the most influential Native artists and their important contributions to American art, thus reassessing the place of indigenous art within the art historical canon. On view August 29th through January 12th, 2020, at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu voices. In Recording Artists, a new Getty podcast series, art historian Helen Molesworth explores the lives and work of six women artists, Alice Neal, Lee Krasner, Betty Saar, Helen Frankenthaler, Yoko Ono, and Ava Hesse. In the episode focused on Helen Frankenthaler, Molesworth is joined by artist Rodney McMillian and art historian Alexander Nemirov. In interviews from 1969 and 1971, Frankenthaler discusses the inspiration for her radically inventive abstract paintings, as well as other early influences. Binge the entire series now at getty.edu slash recordingartists. And we're back. Anna Katz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I'm happy to be here. Is pattern and decoration something that you're presenting in this exhibition and in the fantastic must-own catalog as coalescing around a group of specific artists at a specific time and place? Or is it a phrase that for, for you and for this project brings in a wider range of artists geographically and, and even generationally with shared but sometimes undiscussed interests? It's both. There are, in essence, three categories of artists in the exhibition. The first 
would be artists who are commonly recognized as being at the core of the pattern and decoration movement. And indeed, they knew each other, they met in each other's apartments, they chaired CAA panels and artists talk on art panels in Soho together. They were in each other's classes, they were students together, they taught together, and they themselves called themselves pattern and decoration artists. So there are those artists in the show, and that is the primary meaning of pattern and decoration in the exhibition's subtitle with pleasure pattern and decoration in American art 1972 to 1985 there are also artists in the exhibition whose contributions to pattern and decoration have been underrecognized many of those are the LA based artists in the exhibition or artists again who were working in and around the spheres and orbits of P&D but who aren't commonly recognized as being central contributors. And then there are artists in the exhibition who are not commonly recognized as P&D artists. And my argument is not that they are P&D artists, but to show, to study, to investigate the overlays between the Al Lovings, Linda Bengluses, and others, and the more proper P&D artists in the show, and to really look at the ways in which pattern and decoration were aesthetic concerns and aesthetic strategies in this period, 1972 to 1985. To an extent that there is a specific group at a specific time and place, what was that group uh, or who was in that group and where did it coalesce? As this exhibition sees and frames it, as I see and frame it, the group coalesced or its nascent configurations were in California when Miriam Shapiro was co-leading the feminist art program at CalArts and which culminated in the landmark Woman House exhibition of 1972. That for me is a starting point for this exhibition. It's the kind of crux in many ways of Femage, which is Miriam Shapiro's neologism that she invented, excuse me, that she coined to combine the words feminine or female and collage, which is a kind of um, like guiding light for this exhibition, a North Star for this exhibition. But it also has to do with how Miriam Shapiro was in San Diego and bringing the critic Amy Golden to UC San Diego, where she taught Robert Kushner and Kim McConnell. And those conversations began Miriam Shapiro was instrumental in Joyce Kovsloff's feminist consciousness development in California in the 1970s. She brought Robert Sakanich to California. But the more proper formal story is that these artists around 1974, 1975, began meeting in each other's lofts. Key figures were Robert Sakanich, Tony Robin, Joyce Kozloff, Miriam Shapiro, Valerie Jaudan, Robert Kushner, Kim McConnell, and others. It was in its early days, as in many early days, Phil populated with um, all kinds of artists who um, were interested in patterns and in decoration. So Scott Burton was in these early groups, or Lenore Goldberg, Mario Urasari, and then many artists who are in the exhibition. Barbara Zucker, who was at that time an one of the founding art, she still remains, was one of the founding members of Artists in Residence Gallery, Cynthia Carlson. It was a it was a motley group to begin with. And then where it has 
the the format, I guess you could say, in which it has really been remembered and in which it is assumed to be identical to is the Holly Solomon Gallery. Holly Solomon was the most successful commercial gallery promoter of pattern and decoration. But this exhibition looks well beyond her circle and the activities of of her gallery to say that it was you know much much bigger and wider and broader than that but to really reduce it it was new york mostly downtown in the mid 1970s one of the real strengths of the exhibition is its broad inclusiveness that that it, that it builds a big tent and puts a lot within it in the catalog, you wrote, quote, almost without exception, then as now, every account of P&D defines the movement by what it was not, which I thought was a great way of framing how P&D was an art of inclusion and, and not of exclusion. What did it include? What was it? What, what, what was core to its, I guess, both active making and when, then what the artwork ends up being? It included materials. It included materials drawn from the decorative art, so it included pheasant pheasant feathers and sequins and glitter and scraps of brocaded fabric, and it included polyester woven fabric borders and included ceramics and included paint that was piped through a cake pastry piping bag. So it included materials associated with the decorative. It included patterns. Uh, associated with the decorative, with pattern being more or less the kind of visual language of ornament. So arabesques and floral motifs and patterns drawn from patchwork quilts from a wide range of art forms that are routinely dismissed uh, as decorative, denigrated as secondary or worse. And it included, or inclusion in this case means meant for them Uh, an idea of opening their art up and out. Pattern and decoration is primarily an art of abstraction. It was not an art of self-reference in the sense of self-referential or self-reflexive abstraction. It saw modernism as an art of exclusion, of progressively stripping away everything that was considered inessential to the medium, everything that was considered superfluous everything that was deemed extraneous. And they wanted to make an art, again, based on aesthetic principles of inclusion. So it it bears repeating that the pheasant feathers and the glitter and the sequins, that these were sincerely intended, that this was not an ironic quotation or that the inclusion of such materials was not only or specifically a gesture of reaction, negation, uh, opposition, that P&D is indeed an art of affirmation. And it is without irony, which is hard for people to believe, but so it was. And the part about this that might be easier to believe or easier to understand for those of us who are trained as I am or was in any event, that a certain kind of critical distance is key, or a certain kind of um, critical detachment is key. The part that I think is easier to believe or easier for us to wrap our minds around is that this inclusion was also, of course, an inclusion of 
those arts that are traditionally associated with women's work in the home and with traditional non-Western crafts, pottery and rugs and uh, other kinds of traditional ornamentation, like, say, mosaic, and by extension and inclusion of those artists whose work was marginalized. So an inclusion of women and an inclusion of non-Western arts traditions and non-Western artists. It was in many ways an inclusion of a different kind of facet of art history. You know, Robert Kushner said that they wanted to make art that had everything to do with everything that wasn't in Jansen's history of art. You mentioned the March of Modernism, which we think of most often as being a European arrow pointing at America, arriving at America type of project. Across this exhibition, there is a tremendous amount of cultural cross-pollination back and forth, particularly the bringing of transatlantic traditions into contemporary art. And, And by transatlantic, I don't mean only European. So in the last 20 years or so, historians, and I'm not talking about art historians, have been exploding the idea of the transatlantic as a, a an area of investigation, exploring the Atlantic Rim, as it were, trying to understand a range of tro- trans-oceanic histories and impacts. It kind of struck me walking through the show that the P&Ders were, were there too, but earlier. Well, this in a way gets at the the kind of question you were asking about defining P&D by what it was not in P&D's complex relationship to modernism and ambivalent, say, relationship sometimes to modernism. What's important to me to emphasize about P&D is that it insisted collectively and vociferously that abstraction was not invented as such in Europe in the early 20th century, according to the logic of the medium of painting. But they're looking transatlantically, um, to use your your term here to recenter the question, at abstraction as it has developed great complexity in the decorative arts and with roots that stretch the world over and that are hundreds, if not thousands of years old. So these are artists who see the grid not as an ideal form, but as an applied form, and one that refers to mosaic and basketry and the loom. Artists who see abstraction as developing through kente cloth and through Japanese folding screens and through Native American sand painting and uh, North American quilts. And of course, this entails understanding the ways in which North American quilts are developed with great complexity by people of the African diaspora who were brought here as slaves, the ways in which Japanese folding screens are part of an economy uh, of trade as well, as is kente cloth and what other, whatever other examples I mentioned. Though I would, I would not say that I that I understand P&D artists to be interested in these forms because of their pollination. I don't mean to shortchange them. I hope I'm not, you know, misrepresenting. But I, I don't think that their point was exactly that, and it turns out that American quilting is indebted not only to 
African Americans, but also to Japanese textiles. I mean, I, I, I don't think that was exactly their area of research, but I believe that they would be pleased to have that discussion. To the extent I did think about a, a European lineage, as I read and looked at the show, I thought about the French decorative tradition, particularly of the late 19th century, and particularly as Matisse exploded it in the 30s, 40s, and early 50s. Are there artists here who who you think were, were looking at that tradition? Yeah, absolutely. I think that all of the artists who are working in installation, and one of the arguments of the exhibition is that P&D represents an early, if you know, under-recognized contribution to the development of installation art, where installation art is conceived not as uh, coming from minimalism or from happenings and environments, but as a domestic environment. And indeed, so Cynthia Carlson with her wallpaper installations is um, without a doubt looking maybe not to the French tradition, but to arts and crafts, to William Morris or Kim McConnell, certainly with his paintings, which are unstretched paintings of uneven strips of bed sheets, which she's painted with different decorative patterns, whether batik or arabesques or patterns drawn from commercial illustration, like pictures of uh, ice cream cones. And he used these paintings to decorate the walls of spaces in which he had also decorated furniture, found used furniture, which he covered in squirrels and squirrels, swirls and um, again, other sort of like decorative patterns and lamps and tables and so forth. I think he was absolutely looking at Art Nouveau. I think that Joyce Kozloff, who made an installation in 1979 called An Interior Decorated, which consisted of ceramic tile pilasters. She made the ceramic tiles in her kitchen in Soho. She went to Dean and DeLuca to get rolling pins and cookie cutters and then just inserted them into a bed of grout like she was making a tub, you know, bathtub. Ceramic tile pilasters and silks, which she screened, silk screened at the fabric workshop in Philadelphia, which has a parallel and interesting relationship to P&D, that she was looking at, for example, that first part of the Bauhaus, the craft-oriented part of the Bauhaus. So this is a way of saying, yes, indeed, I believe that many of the artists in the exhibition are engaging in career-long negotiations with Matisse uh, and with his legacy. But if you ask any one of them, you know, like, do you like Vuillard? <laughs> I can guarantee you that they'll, that they'll say yes. And if you ask any one of them, if they were aware of and interested in Annie Albers, despite the fact that they were not learning about Annie Albers in their curricula, the answer is yes. I mean, they, they had interest in Sonia Delaunay, again, long before Sonia Delaunay gets a, a retrospective. So they were interested in these more kind of repressed, I would say, histories of modernism, certainly histories of modernism that were more repressed in the 1970s when they were coming of age as artists. And this indicates or this, I think, belies the myth that modernism was ever and always anti-decorative. That's really that's really great. I think one of my favorite things about this project has been rethinking origins of what we now call call installation art. You mentioned that a lot of the work in in the show is or maybe even most probably even most of the work in the show is is abstract. If there is a major dominant exception to that, it is 
artworks that include or prominently feature flowers. Why are, why are there so many flowers and how are artists uh, using them? Well, there are a couple kinds of decorative motifs in the world. Um, there are geometric ones and there are vegetal ones, to put it really simply. A number of the artists in the exhibition are interested in the geometric patterns because, um, as I was alluding to earlier, they're interested in the grid, they're interested in the kind of mark making that is non-expressive, that is anonymous um, rather than signature, that is sort of anticlimactic. But there are, as you say, a number of artists in the exhibition, Robert Sikanich, Robert Kushner, um, many others, for whom the floral botanical motif is well, primary, but also luscious and colorful. And there are artists in the exhibition whose work is not floral, but takes the form of a flower. So if you think of Barbara Zucker's um, crystal doorknob sculptures. She made those pleated silk collars for the crystal doorknobs also at the fabric workshop in Philadelphia. And those two with their ribbons tied around seem like, you know, a nosegay. Or for Miriam Shapiro, floral motifs are actual, she's cutting and pasting bits of fabric that are printed with with flowers, so chintz fabric, for example. Why flowers? I don't know. This might be a bigger question about like why it is that we, as human beings, like the colors and shapes of flowers and cut flowers in our homes and decorate our fabrics that you know of our couches and of our clothes with flowers. In this exhibition, I want the flowers to feel or to evoke the sense of a gift of the artist giving you, of the artist giving you flowers. Um, one of the works in the show, which is not floral, is by Linda Benglis. It's called Lanyap Bayou Babe from 1977. It's one of two works in the exhibition that come from Mocha's collection. All the other pieces, the other 95 pieces, there are 97 works in the exhibition overall, the other 95 pieces are loans. But this one work, Lanyap Bayou Babe, which consists of well, it sort of looks like a baton. It's like five feet tall and has a like gessoed plaster over chicken wire, making a sort of cylindrical or tubular body that's encrusted in stripes of glitter with um, basically like cellophane coming out the tops and bottoms. And this is all my way of um, pointing to that title, Lanyap. Lanyap is a French Creole word and Linda Benglis is from Louisiana, and it refers to the extra gift that a merchant might give a customer. So, you know, when they give you, I, I don't even know, an extra chocolate, so like a baker's dozen, that extra bagel um, is a lanyap, or because we're here in California, said, yeah, like when they give you like a free joint at the um, weed shop as an extra little, <laughs> uh, uh, an extra little, uh, you know, uh, icing on the cake, um, I suppose. So in this show, I wanted the flowers, as I want all of the work in the show, to convey the generosity of spirit with which the work is is made. And that's how I react to to the flowers. But the history of floral motifs in art is ancient. Well, I want to ask you something. Can I ask you something? What did you think? Of, what did you think of the flowers or, or what did they mean to you? I, I, I thought they were fascinating at a number of levels. One, it's certainly 
uh, an engagement with a 19th century French tradition and probably with a tradition going back to Chardin and such, but but it felt very specifically 19th century French and then exploding it. It felt uh, very much like an acknowledgement of, of Matisse often throughout. So when we think of the great floral still life painters, the French tradition, with one or two exceptions, we pretty much think of men. And uh, in a lot of the show, it felt like a lot of women were reclaiming the thing, taking something that in the American tradition is thought of as kind of a stereotypical, cliched women's place flower arranging, for example. You know, in the 70s and 80s, lots of big American art museums started flower arranging programs where, you know, the, the museum would be taken over by the women's auxiliary who would do flower arrangements, right? And that still happens in lots of museums. And, and you know, it felt like there were many ways in which flowers were being recast and reclaimed across the show. And one of them, and maybe, I mean, what, what felt to me like one of the very major pieces in the show, a real bridge between uh, conceptualism and and P and D and and modernism um, and and William Morris is a piece called Walls Wallpaper One from 1974. Who made it and why why is it such a bridge? The piece Walls Wallpaper One from 1974 is by an artist named Tina Gerard. You have seen a picture of Tina Gerard. I can almost guarantee you there's a famous photo of Gordon Matta Clark outside food restaurant, and he's flanked by two women, and she's one of them. She was involved with a range of downtown experiments, 112 Green Street, food restaurant, clock tower. She was in the very first exhibition. Alana Heiss invited her to participate in the Rooms exhibition at PS1 and. 19 whatever. I'm sorry. I don't know the date off the top of my head. So she was actively involved in, again, a number of downtown arts groups and movements. And she made work that will use the logic of patterns. So this work will remind you of a Solowit or an Ellsworth Kelly or something like that, or maybe a Mary Course. It has two components. The smaller component, which is hung on the left, is framed its instructions written by her on graph paper for how to install um, or assemble and install the work that is the larger component on the right and she includes um, in her written instructions samples of the four strips of wallpaper that will comprise the bigger work the bigger component on the right. So the piece on the right consists of four, maybe 18 inch wide strips of floral wallpaper, different uh, floral motifs laid left to right. So they're vertical strips mounted to a sheet of muslin that's then tacked directly to the wall. So this in every way could be seen to be an instruction-based piece of conceptual art. It could be seen to be working with found ready-made materials, but in every way it also has to do with the domestic. It also has to do with decoration. It also has to do with women's activities or those activities that are culturally understood as women's work, as women's work in the home. Yeah, and that piece is also collage as decoration and a reminder that decoration is collage because the large element you were discussing is collaged. <laughs> the large element is collage, and this goes back to uh, that notion of femage, Miriam Shapiro's notion of femage, which she first theorized in an article co-written with Melissa Mayer that was published 
in the fourth issue of Heresies, uh, which was winter 1977-78, and that is known, you know, idiomatically as the P&D issue or the sort of decorative issue of Heresies. And Miriam Shapiro said, uh, you know, collage, well, femage, I should say first, femage is the term that she coined to describe all range of collage-like, assemblage-like activities, which women have been engaged for centuries. So decoupage, quilting, other kinds of patchwork, um, making braided rag rugs, making scrapbooks, making valentines. And it also refers to women's habits of saving little scraps of fabric and paper that could be repurposed for such activities. And she's writing, she and Melissa Mayer are writing in this article, Femage, What Women saved uh, in 1977 in the fourth issue of heresies they're writing you know collage was a word invented in the 20th century to describe activities that women have been doing for hundreds of years and she says you know if the collages who preceded her were men so we can think of picasso here um scavenging the city streets at night for their junk for their materials for their newspapers and chair caning and whatnot then her femage would evoke her life and her mother's life and her grandmother's life through those materials, often floral, fabric materials that would be made beautiful if repurposed around the trim of a pillowcase or curtains next to a window or to make a patch in someone's clothing. So collage is indeed like a foundational principle of pattern and decoration, but they are associating collage with quilting, with wallpapering, with scrapbooking, with decoupage, with applique, and so forth. One other thing on on the Tina Gerard before moving on, it's a perfect example of how important the grid is to so many of the artists in the show. So both the kind of Douglas Hubler-like instructions uh, or description or explanation component of the piece. It's on it's on gridded paper. Uh, what do you call that? Graph paper. And then each of the wallpaper strips are built on built on the grid um, of, of, of different sizes. It's a really great piece. It's in the collection uh, of the Hessel at Bard, uh, to which the show will travel. You know, depending on who, all patterns are in some way based on a grid. There are different like philosophies and camps about how patterns work, but some people were arguing then that a grid subtends every basic kind of pattern, and in fact, that the grid is the simplest kind of pattern that there is. I was going to switch to to textiles. Uh, textiles have been a primary interest of artists since at least the Dutch Golden Age. Certainly Matisse paints more textiles than one would have believed humanly possible. Across this show, artists are less painting textiles, although there's that too, but they're using them. What motivated or informed that that jump, or maybe maybe what enabled that jump from merely representing to to wielding? Yeah, there are a number of artists in the show who are either incorporating scraps of fabric into their work. So Miriam Shapiro is a primary example here. There are a number of artists in the show who are using the techniques of quilting. Lucas Samaras is sewing, you know, patchwork quilts, essentially, or the um, quilt tops and stretching them. Jane Kaufman actually made a quilt. She used all of the traditional techniques of quilting and historical embroidery stitches. And then there are a number of artists in the show who are unstretching canvas or letting canvas fabric be 
as such on the wall, letting it be canvas fabric on the wall. Howardina Pindell is a really fine example. The piece in our show is a large-scale work called Carnival at Ostende from 1977. And it consists, I, I believe it was the first work that she made where she cut up canvas squares and sewed them back together. I might be incorrect there, but in any event, it's one of the early works of hers that consists of squares of canvas that she sewed back together and again, then covered in icing-like acrylic paint, this really delectable opalescent paint, and which acts almost like a, a receptor surface. It acts like an adhesive. It's almost as if it has a static cling all of these different materials are then adhered to the surface through this paint. So of course, punched paper dots, her signature form, but sequins and glitter and thread. There are tons of loose threads, in fact, that are coming off the edges, off the sort of, yeah, the, the perimeter of the painting. And she was inspired by quilts, of course, and also by her travels through East and West Africa, she was traveling with Lowry Stokes Sims. They were both African-American curators at major New York museums, Howardina Pindell at the Modern and uh, Lowry Stokes Sims at the Met. They were traveling together in East and West Africa, and it was the traditional African textiles that Howardina Pindell saw. So Nigerian strip weaving and kente cloth that inspired her to let her paintings be unstretched and present themselves to the viewer as pieces of fabric. There are many artists in the show who leave their work unstretched, their paintings unstretched, as if to remind us that even, even the old master painters, even the Velasquez's or the Rembrandt's are on fabric, are on woven fabrics, that those are not neutral supports, but are in fact crafted materials. There are a number of artists in the show who are using materials other than canvas. So Kim McConnell, as I mentioned, is using bedsheets, used bedsheets. I don't mean dirty ones. I just mean used ones. <laughs> or Al Loving. Let me jump in for a quick second. You were talking about a number of the artists in the show allowed you to see kind of the sagginess of the textile to underscore it. Al Loving's untitled 1982 piece in the show is the best example of that. Al Loving's um, 1982 piece consists of pieces of polyester fabric, found pieces, stripe pieces. There are three components, and they do kind of hang loosely on the stretcher, and then he's covered it with this um, boisterous uh, collage of dyed and painted papers. Al Loving's other, the other work by Al Loving in the show, which is an untitled piece from 1975, is also an unstretched fabric work based on the principle of quilting, of collage, that is, that also, again, hangs on the wall. So this is all a way of saying that these artists were interested in a more intimate engagement with art and one in which the viewer could make an association between the fabric that she's wearing on her body or the blanket that she slept under last night or the towel that he dried his hands off with in the morning. Anyway, everyday kinds of fabric are brought in closer relationship to the work in this show with the artists presenting them as textiles. It's also the case that many of these artists are not so much interested in dish towels and quilts, but in 18th century bizarre silks, in Persian rugs, or in Turkish carpets, in those 
in those patterns and in those weaving structures. And there are also in the exhibition works that are sort of more properly from the province of fiber art. We have a weaving by Leah Cook in the show from 1985 called Through the Curtain and Up from the Sea, as well as a woven work by Netta Al-Halali, a storied fiber artist who studied with Bernard Kester at UCLA. And that is a weaving or a woven work that's made of paper, like industrial paper towel that she wetted and braided and then wove and actually knit to create the dimensional uh, like shape and form. So textiles are important, again, because of the everyday and also because of the long and compositionally and aesthetically complex history of textiles that these artists are looking at. While we're talking about weaving, there's a spectacular 1982 Emma Amos in the show that is, you know, maybe my favorite thing in, in, in the whole show. It commands a room like almost almost nothing else. This show hints at discourses between groups of artists I might not have expected. So in this example here, Amos was was a spiral artist at a time when uh, conversations between the black and white art worlds were much less common than they are now. And the show also suggests that at a time when most of New York was ignoring California whenever it could, that there was a lot of New York to L.A. discourse among these artists. Was was some uh, or part of the project here intentionally to reach out in ways that, that the mainstream and commercially dominated art world wasn't? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's the work of history making. We can do that now. We can see now that Al Loving and Miriam Shapiro were both in the late 1960s hard-edged minimalist painters of significant renown that both in the early 1970s had deep awakenings of their political and social consciousness or new registers of it in any event. In uh, Miriam Shapiro's case, she was radicalized as a feminist. In Al Loving's case, he came to feel a great disparity between his hard-edged minimalist work and the concerns of black life in a time of um, new struggles in or new chapters in the struggle for civil rights and the rise of the movement for black power and that both of these artists were inspired by the fabric art of quilts and both began making shaped colorful fabric-based paintings based on the aesthetic principles of collage as far as i know this has gone uncommented on previously but it's something that we can see readily now it's also the case yeah that there were conversations and crossovers so i mentioned an important issue of heresies from 1977-1978 and the contributors to this issue of heresies included Miriam Shapiro and Joyce Kozloff and Valerie Jaudan and D Shapiro you know proper pattern and decoration artists i say that advisedly you know with scare quotes um, but the contributors also included Linda Benglis, Faith Ringgold, Howardina Pindell, Barbara Zucker and m- many many others so there there were conversations happening between these artists. But the the point is not so much to to prove that these connections actually really existed as to as to look at the art together. 
um, as to look at as to look at the artworks together, not to not necessarily like to body forth social networks, which we can point to, but to see what was happening in American art in this period. And it was much more than was made visible by previous um, and certainly like contemporaneous constructions of pattern and decoration, such as my argument anyway. The last thing I want to raise is the ways in which artists were responding to what they were seeing um, in institutions and to a lot of new art history. There's a terrific essay in the catalog by Sarah Neal Smith about how in the mid-1970s, the Met opened 10 galleries newly devoted to Islamic art. What impact did that have on artists and how do we see it in the show? That had a huge impact on certainly the uh, New York-based artists in the show. These artists were like really all artists traveling. They were traveling abroad. They were traveling to Morocco and Kenya and Iraq and Iran and Japan and China. They were traveling to Mexico. They were traveling to Turkey and Spain and you know, again, the um, impulse to travel is one shared by many people and many artists. But what they were looking at and what they were looking for was a different kind of relationship to the decorative. It is the case that many non-Western cultures do not observe a hierarchy of decorative art and fine art, or rather a fine art above decorative art. Many non-Western artistic cultural traditions don't even distinguish between applied arts and fine arts or decorative art and high art. So they were there, they were traveling abroad to understand how the decorative works uh, in other parts of the world. They were trying to unlearn their tastes and un- inculcate themselves from the values um, and histories of Western art, which they had been trained in. And so they were copying patterns that they saw. They were taking inspiration, like Howard Dina Pindell, of unstretched, you know, freeform fabrics. And they were doing the same kind of tourism in books and, you know, whatever catalogs they can get their hands on. This is also, you know, standard for artists. But they were also doing this kind of, you know, tourism, we could say, in museums, in in Western museums, in museums in New York. And this was a great moment of exhibitions of what we would call decorative art and of non-Western decorative art in American museums, with the Mets rehang of the Islamic wing being a touchstone for so many of them. So they went to the shows and they took their notebooks and they copied the patterns and they studied they studied the objects. And this is of great interest to me because P and D is sort of interestingly like has the the art movement has a kind of parallel and really close proximity to museological practice and studies. I mean, these were artists in the first place who were very much like galvanized by feminist art history. They were in close conversation with Linda Nochlin. They were trying to redress art historical marginalizations in their work. They were looking at the absence of women from art history and seeking to validate the traditional achievements of women in their work. They were going to the museum. They were seeing Islamic art exhibitions and looking at that, uh, studying that, you know, closely as much as you know, a curator or art history student might. One of the things that I came to understand about 
these artists and the museum was that while the artists, the feminist artists in particular, in particular had a keen and critical understanding of the ways in which the decorative was the the secondary status of the decorative in any event was the like sexist creation of sexist institutions of art. They seemed to have a much less keen understanding of the ways in which they were by going to Western art museums and copying those patterns, the ways in which they were actually often replicating rather than criticizing the logic of the museum as a storehouse of styles, all available for the taking. In so much of their work, and especially in the work of those artists who were trying to redress their exclusion or the exclusion of women like them or the exclusion um, of black women like them from art history. In many cases, those artists especially were the ones who were looking for and finding a kind of affinity between women's work in the home, embroidery and cross-stitch, and non-Western decorative arts, pottery and other textiles. They, they saw this connection, they propped it up, and they thought it was a kind of dialogue. And again, seemed to have a limited understanding of the mechanisms by which non-Western art appears in Western art museums. Those are mechanisms of imperialism and colonialism, exploitation and theft. So this is a place, I think, for us to be critical or to do the historical work of criticism of pattern and decoration artists and understanding their relationship to the museum, again, which in many cases seems uncritical. It also reminds me what a profound loss it is to artists and art in Los Angeles that the major encyclopedic museum here is hell-bent on uh, dismantling its collection galleries and department structure, because this show demonstrates really clearly how artists benefited from that. Anna Katz, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking such an interest in our exhibition. The internationally acclaimed exhibition Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, is making its final West Coast stop in San Francisco. On view now at the de Young Museum, Soul of a Nation celebrates the art made by black artists during two pivotal decades when issues of race and identity dominated public consciousness. Visitors to the de Young Museum's presentation will discover the Bay Area's own unique connection to the art and artists of the black power era. Don't miss Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power's final West Coast stop. Reserve your tickets today at deyoungmuseum.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Larry Pittman Declaration of Independence, the most comprehensive retrospective to date of the work of the prolific painter. Organized by Hammer Chief Curator Connie Butler, the exhibition features nearly 80 paintings and 50 works on paper spanning Pittman's entire career. A selection of Pittman's drawings will comprise orangerie, a standalone installation providing an intimate space for viewing Pittman's works on paper. Larry Pittman, Declaration of Independence, is on view September 29, 2019, through January 5, 2020. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Visit the Nasher Sculpture Center through January 5 to see Elmgreen and Dragset Sculptures, the Scandinavian duo's first major museum presentation in the U.S. Throughout the exhibition, the artists utilize sculpture, performances, and site-specific installations in the Nasher's galleries and garden 
to reinterpret familiar designs found in everyday life, emphasizing personal, social, and political issues. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Robert Zakanich. As you're about to hear, he was one of the instigators of the pattern and decoration movement. Starting in the early 1970s, his work turned away from minimalism and color field painting to embrace motifs most often wielded as decoration. His work is in the collection of museums such as the Tate, MoMA, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and the Whitney Museum of American Art, and his most recent museum exhibition was at the Hudson River Museum in New York. Robert Sakanich, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Well, thank you. You were there at the moment that all but starts the pattern and decoration movement, and indeed kind of the moment from which the uh, exhibition at MoCA starts. In 1974, you went out to the University of California, San Diego in La Jolla to spend a year teaching. What kind of paintings were you making when you left the Northeast? I was doing color field paintings. And I had, you know, I had established sort of a, well, a, a reputation as a, a color painter. Who's it? Robert, the critic for the Time magazine? Robert Hughes. Robert Hughes, yeah. Included me in that, and that kind of started everything off. Yeah, that, that's what I was doing. But I was changing. I, 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 was, in, I was in this state of transition. It was a, Now I remember, it, you'll have to forgive me. I've, I've been through this so many times. I keep forgetting many things. But anyway, yeah, my work was really changing. I was moving away from formalism, which was the whole Greenbergian thing in the 20th century. And um, I, I really didn't know where I was at the time. But I, I, I knew that my work was beginning to, what I was doing in a, in a raw state was, was beginning to include pattern. I thought, well, this is interesting. Where is this going? And when I got there, uh, you know, Mimi and uh, Mimi Shapiro and Paul Brock were teaching uh, Cal Arts. So Paul knew I was out there, and he called me and said, you know, why don't you come out and give, give a talk, give a lecture? And my response was, you know, I don't think so, Paul. I have no idea what I'm doing, because I, I don't think I know where I began. And he said, I think that'd be a great a great, a great, great talk to start with. Said, yeah, well, you're not doing it, you know. So anyway, I did. And that's where I was, very unsure. I'm sorry, let me just jump in. A great example of the work you had been making before this is in the Whitney's collection, a 1969 painting titled Towards Humming, which we'll have on manpodcast.com. It's it's large, about uh, 82 inches by 181 inches by 145. It's, like you said, it's clearly coming out of color field, playing with gradations of of bright pinks and, and bright purples. But that one was very soft moving. It was moving from a soft kind of lavender to ochre. So what got you looking at pattern? What got you thinking about, about patterns in 74-ish? Well, that's easy. I was really looking for a third subject matter. You know, up to that point in art history, strangely enough, artists only had two uh, choices, and they were representationalism and in the 20th century abstraction. And neither choices I was any longer interested in. You know, and I thought, well, how... It's like trying to find another color. It was like, well, what am I going to do about that? So what I did, my life was really changing here. I started, I mean, I stopped going to museums 
and I stopped going to galleries because they were showing exactly what I'm not interested in looking at, which was representational and abstraction. And I started to my get my galleries and museums became you know flea markets and rug stores, of which there are many in New York, which is wonderful. Junk stores and yard sales, and all those objects, you know that were so filled with uh, ornamentation and uh, very domestic work, like embroidery. And it started to really, and I thought, you know, and things that I really loved, they were really beautiful. And I wanted to, and things that, that were part of my life, through my life growing up, you know, I thought, you know, I want to put that into uh, into my work, into the paintings. And formalism was very constrictive and it was you know, you had to break those barriers. There were all these rules about paint. And so that that's where I was. Were you, I mean, those all of those things you're describing are the opposite of minimalism. Were you consciously, intentionally wanting to respond to, disassociate from, react against minimalism? Oh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Minimalism is at the beginning. I mean, it was all this less is more. You know, then we, from minimalism, goes a the, the step farther, uh, further, uh, which is conceptualism, which is the end of even artist materials. And it was all about your brain at that point. And I thought, my God, you know, this is like the, the emperor's new clothes, you know. It's like, I really need some subject matter here. And so it was a bad time. And so, and of course, everyone was yelling painting was dead, which it, they've always been yelling every. 20 years or so. The most New York thing ever to yell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So while you're in California in, in the mid-70s, you mentioned meeting Miriam Shapiro and lecturing at CalArts. Who else did you meet that, that nudged you? Oh, well, I didn't meet Mimi there. We knew each other from New York City, same with Paul Brock. And so when, that's why when I got there, they you know called me. Because we, we were friends at that point. So yeah, we, I I met Kim. Kim McConnell. Yeah, I, and I spent an afternoon with him and his his friend. I don't know. Okay, and we looked at his work, but I I liked what he was what he was being influenced by, which I saw were also rugs. So that was good. I just started finding these things that I was saying there's changes going on here, and it's really interesting. And, it, and I've been seeing patterns around the city, et cetera. And so when I went out to California, there it was again. Well, isn't this interesting? So when I was teaching there, that's when I thought, well, you know, I think when I get back, when I was talking to Mimi, I had a long talk with her, and I said, well, when we get back, let's get together and make calls of who we know and who are we also think are, you know, the same mind. And that's what we did which was then maybe three or four months later. And then we had the first meeting, you know, down at my studio. You mentioned Kim McConnell. At about this time, uh, McConnell is making paintings that, to my eye anyway, are really intensely informed by the European still life tradition, going back to the 19th century, particularly paintings of flowers, and then into Matisse and Matisse's handling of both flowers and, and, and space. Did any of of that art history interest you at all? Well, the truth is all of art history interested me. 
but no, there wasn't anything specifically other than the tantric art. That's what it was. It was the tantric art that I saw. It was a show of tantric art, and it just was like, wow, this is unbelievable. You know, these small, beautiful paintings, they were about compassion, you know, and, and, uh, and real humaneness. And the subject matter was very tantric, <laughs> circles and arcs and... But there was something about them that was so fantastic that I started to think about art not as itself again, it, you know, but as, uh, as something about humaneness. And that's where all these rugs and things started taking over in me, and all the things I was seeing in junk, you know, in yard sales and things. You know, that was all very humane to me. So I made that that connection. But it wasn't about art history. I mean, I, I, I can't think of anyone. I once I got into P and D, uh, to be P and D, that connected to that. It was a, it was a real a break from it completely. As a matter of fact, and that's why I kept saying, "Gee, what am I doing? This is really exciting. But where is this coming from?" So when we see flowers in your paintings, like in the two canvases in Mocha's exhibition, you're looking at textiles rather than thinking about actual, you know, physical flowers? Yes, I always thought about textiles. I always thought about, I mean, the people that kept saying, oh, you're painting flowers, and I never thought I was a flower painter. You know, I just thought these were just big, wonderful images. And, well, when I was doing big, but when I was using them as pattern, they were just marks that were made where I could move color around and, and, and giving that very soft edge that I, that I liked, you know, each one. And there was something very romantic about that, and and that was another issue, you know, with the whole, the whole word romantic was, you know, banned from, uh, as well as beauty, it was banned from the, the mainstream of art. There's a, there's kind of a giveaway in each of the mocha paintings that you're painting textiles, not flowers. In one of the paintings, Dragonfire, you you paint in the, the folds of the textiles so that we see a suggestion anyway that, that we're not seeing actual flowers. And in Angel Feet, the same thing. At the top of the painting, we see some white, air quotes, white space behind the image of the flowers and the pattern that also clues us in. And it's, I, I, I like these ways of, you know, these these are fun little winks. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's like painting an enormous painting of ornamentation. And then you're fitting in all different kinds of objects in it. Dragonfire. Yeah, you know that? that I had just gotten back, or we had just gotten back from Europe, and uh, Jado was just in my mind, you know, when I saw them for real, and, and I came back and I said, I, I need to get that kind of gesture into my work. So I started a series of works, and that was one of them, and it was I called the Couture Series, and it was having this kind of fabric looking from Jado kind of in, in that painting along with all those the flowers and all the red flowers. And it was the very first gold painting that I had ever done. So I thought, well, oh, this is a nice mix. Yeah, and they're both spectacularly brushy. Yeah, they're very painterly. That's the thing about all my work is, in the end, is really about painting. And that's why the, the subject matter that I'm doing, when I finally found the third subject matter, which was ornamentation, by the way, which was hidden in this whole theory of P&D, 
And there it was. I never felt I was making ornamentation either. I felt I was painting, uh, making paintings of ornamentation, which is always very important to me, that distinction. Yes, yeah, some of the some of the painting in the Mocha exhibition, Kim McConnell's comes to mind is 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 really flat, kind of more like how we think of color field color, as having been uh, absorbed air quotes into a support. Yours is rich and luscious and almost you know with with with, with the way the gold acts on, on 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 Dragonfire, it's almost like there's a shimmer. We almost think the paint is still moving. <laughs> mm. Well, they're very physical, physical surfaces. But I'm glad you get that. Do you really get that sense of it's moving? I like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think from I, I think with the, with the with the larger painting too, with Angel Feet, that there is a sense of liquidity, not of course in the financial sense, but in the liquid, <laughs> in the liquid sense. When did when did lace begin to interest you, and 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 why? Oh yeah, they came after 9/11. I was doing I did I was I did two paintings before that that were about lace and they were they were different. They were they were very rich and they had a lot of color in them. And I used a lot of stencils and, and then after 9/11 all the backgrounds went black and I was working with white. And I started doing this doing those paintings afterwards where everyone was kind of was devastated by that atrocity and I just kind of after a week or so I just kind of got angry and said you know hell with this let's start making art and let's start putting some goodness back into the world and and it was very important I called friends and said you know if you're not working start working because it's time enough of this and so then I started doing these big black and white lace paintings and they were perfect because I thought of them as you know I think that all of us are so interconnected uh, and all the arts are interconnected obviously but everything became interconnected all human beings and the whole universe became the whole thing we're all living on and we're all part of it and this all came about once I started doing these lace paintings of this whole kind of beautiful thing about relying on each other and interconnecting with each other. And that's what lace was. It was lace was these little knots that were all tied together, you know. Which I always thought was brilliant, by the way. I mean, whoever invented making lace, you know, there should be a museum for this person or a plaque on the wall. Did you ever see this stuff? Oh My yeah. God. And painters have always loved it. I mean painters, you know, look at all those Dutch Golden Age paintings that are, or or even before, really. I mean, if you go back a century before that. Finally, you know, one thing that stayed in your work throughout is that you make paintings wherein the compositions, the painting itself, fills fills the rectangle. You're you're not directing the eye to the center or to or building diagonals that send us to a corner. You're using the the entire rectangle whether it's with lace or in the late color field paintings where, you know, as we talked about, kind of the color seems to be moving across the field like a miasma or, of something or, or the paintings of textiles. Why did that stay important to you? Well, I, first of all, I don't, I, I don't think I ever did fill the canvas all the way. I always left the edges showing. 
And there was always a rawness on the edge. As a matter of fact, an artist friend said, well, I always know your work because I always think it's not finished <laughs> because, because I do leave that space. But that, that space that I leave becomes a part of the painting. It's, it is not an empty space to me. It, it's very solid. It's like, you know, the big bungalow of sweet paintings, the 32 feet paintings. I love the fact that I couldn't put them on stretchers. And when they were so seen, they had to be unrolled on the wall. And you saw all the extra foot, foot and a half of raw canvas around it with all the drips and the, you know, the plot as you were working. So there was a wonderful process there. Yeah, I love to show process because, you know, as a painter and every, any painter knows is that when they're painting, you get it. You get into states or parts of the painting that you say, "Oh, I love, I love it." You know, I like the stage it's in. Oh, and I can't go any any further. You know, I don't because it's too beautiful. But you do because it's not finished. So you have to give them up, and somehow. So I'm always trying to keep parts of that beautiful process showing on the edges, etc. I love it. Robert Zakanich, thanks so much. It was wonderful. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.